Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for listening. I am your host, Patrick Martins. You're listening to The Main Course. We're broadcasting uh, the 200th show of The Main Course live out of Roberta's Restaurant, 261 Moore Street. Very exciting. I'm the first host on the network to get to 200. It's uh, four years in the making, over four years. Um, So I was thinking, what do I do for the 200th show? And I thought... Um, talking with my friend Tony Butler that food justice would be an appropriate show theme since that's pretty much what I dedicate my life to is food justice. Um, before we get into the show uh, with Tony as a guest, uh, you know, I want to wish everyone, hope they had a great Christmas and um, New Year and, and a very happy and safe holiday. It's icy out there in New York City. Um, so, you know, food justice has always been an important part of my work, uh, with slow food, heritage foods, and, uh, you know, the heritage radio, um, and at heritage foods, you know, the meat we celebrate is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. Antibiotics and growth hormones are not part of that system. The environment is respected and fair labor is practiced. Unfortunately, not everyone has access to quality food all the time, but all people deserve to eat this way. We dismiss the claim that good food is elitist and that we should accept low standards of food quality for anyone. We applaud anything that moves the dial in the right direction away from the industrial food complex that has betrayed our trust. Slowing down, eating meat in season, investing in local businesses, or getting cozy with your butcher or bartender are all a step in the right direction. It really boggles the mind when food is confused with fashion. Food is not a handbag. It's about sustenance and survival. It's the ultimate intimacy. You put it in your mouth. You put it in your body. There's no bigger issue of our time than our food supply and the earth's ability to provide it for us. On every front, we are spoiling our nest. The thin layer of topsoil that feeds the planet is fraying like a cheap suit. Global warming is turning agricultural havens into deserts. Pesticides are poisoning a water supply that is quickly drying up in many areas. Our livestock are so overbred for fast growth that their bones are weak. A quarter of all chickens arrive to the slaughterhouse already injured and in pain. Antibiotics are fed to animals because they are presumed too sick to live without them. And humans who eat them, especially children, are becoming immune to certain medicines because of this chemically tainted food chain. We have lost many of the independent farms in this country. We need action. Since slow food began, we've seen fads melt and trends rise and fall. We've seen the food world morph into fashion where sizzle rules the day no matter where the steak came from. 
But the spate of fancy events and color photographs and chef competition shows on television have done little to help independent American farmers sleep at night or to improve the chances that our planet might survive the current onslaught of corporate farming and the looming realities of climate change. We're drowning in recipes and food porn. When it comes to the real issues that concern our farmers and the health of America's food supply, the food media is failing. It isn't much more than a beauty pageant. The revolution needed a voice, something to punch through this insipid wall of tawdry, feel-good fluff. So in 2009, largely inspired by Carlo Petrini's pirate station in Italy, Radio Bra Onde Rosse, which stands for Radio Bra Red Waves, we began the Heritage Radio Network, an internet-based radio station out behind Roberta's restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Carlo rescued an old military surplus transmitter to start his station. We built ours out of a couple of recycled shipping containers and put it on the roof and put a garden on the roof. Chris Parachini, Brandon Hoy, and Carlo Maracci had opened Roberta's a few months earlier and were at the vanguard of a new generation of restaurant. Roberta's was unlike any other in America. The restaurant itself was built out of an old auto body shop with rescued and recycled materials in an industrial district that had nearly burned to the ground during the Great Blackout of 1977. Now, it is as much the hub of a fantastic new food movement. Heritage Radio now reaches millions of listeners a month. We produce our own content that directly competes with the food coverage on NPR, CNN, and every other major news portal. At the core of the station are 30 fantastic weekly shows hosted by a diverse group of chefs, authors, visionaries, lunatics, journalists, historians, and hedonists about food technology, beer, cheese, history, politics, and cocktails, to name just a few of the myriad, plus a few outlier shows covering alternative music, arts, and pop culture. The station started as something of a clubhouse for subversive foodies, but has grown into a legitimate media outlet. We are a source for hard news and opinion, a beacon for like-minded progressives who do not view food sim- as simply fodder for the style section. Um, so thanks for listening to that introduction, that 200-show introduction. Uh, we are going to take a short break and then come back with our guest, Tony Butler, the executive produ- uh, director of Bread and Life. You are listening to Onions Milk by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Congratulations to Patrick Martins on his 200th episode of the main course. Stay tuned. Ranch grass-fed beef 
pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Thanks, Brian Kenny, for singing that Hearst Ranch sponsorship. Uh, amazing sponsors over all the years. They were our first sponsor and, and remain one of our largest. Uh, I'm Patrick Martins. You're listening to The Main Course. We have Tony Butler, the executive director of Bread and Life in studio. Welcome. Uh, it's great to be here. And our uh, theme today is uh, something that basically is both of our life's work in different ways. Uh, the theme for today's show is food justice. Right. So uh, tell me, uh, I mean, we kind of almost came up with that topic together for the 200th show. Uh, what does food justice mean to you? I think food justice means, I mean, it's, it's what you said in, in your intro. It's, it's everyone has access to nutritious food. It's humanely produced. We're good stewards of the land. Um, and uh, just wages are paid um, to create a, a product at a fair price that people can uh, use. Mm-hmm. Now, it used to be kind of a fringe thing, and now do you see this coming more into the mainstream as a concern? I think so. I mean, just as an example of bread and life that we you know, purchase a significant amount of food from local farmers, we bought some uh, you know, food from Heritage and like that, mm-hmm. that even something, a charitable institution like ours is doing it because it's important and people are asking for it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's uh, it's just past a, a cool thing. I mean, uh, food justice is – well, tell people what Bread and Life is. I mean, just to contextualize right. what you're talking about. Bread and Life is the largest emergency food provider in Brooklyn. Uh, just to give an idea, we gave over a million meals last year um, uh, to hungry New Yorkers, um, both hot meals in our uh, hot meal program um, and in our food pantry, and work to provide the other services, immigration, health services, help people procure their identification, um, people sign up for food stamps, Medicaid, and, and the like to help them sort of to reduce the need for emergency food. Because right now, one in five New Yorkers is using emergency food resources. One in five. It's about 1.8 million or so, give or take. Hmm. And uh, these are people uh, – uh, who are these people? I mean uh, – What's happened is traditionally it used to be people who were, if you will, broke. It was more homeless or, or, or folks who just did not have the income. What we're seeing now is a dramatic rise in uh, folks who are working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, the stat roughly that 45, 46% of folks working fast food jobs are on Medicare or Medicaid, excuse me, mm. and food stamps and using programs like ours. Mm. And Walmart had to launch a, a food drive for its employees. For its employees, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, if you work at Walmart or McDonald's and you have four kids, you might be working a, a full time job yep. or two and still not have and, enough. And may have no health coverage on top of that. Right. Um, well, you said something very interesting to me. You said hunger is a justice issue, not a poverty issue. Can it, you explain that? It's a, because we've made um, decisions around our food network, um, I'm sure the, the listeners know, are, that create artificial demand, create artificial food prices, create artificial subsidies. They are, they are political choices, and political choices bring justice and injustice. Um, I think one of the things that's that's affecting us, particularly in this country now, around food justice. I run a large charitable institution, and we think that charity comes first. I don't, but I think there's a sense that charity comes first and then justice. A charitable institution is sort of symptomatic of the lack of justice. Mm -hmm. Justice is the base. People have a right to those basic things. Not given to them, but have a right to reasonable access to those basic things, have a right to that those things, if we're talking about food, are, are taken care of as good stewards. 
um, that the people producing them are able to work in a safe and just and mm-hmm. economically viable um, way. And we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Well, where is this injustice? I mean, just uh, I mean, is this about writing your congressman? Is this uh, the Republicans? Is this uh, the uh, House of Representatives? Yeah. I mean, how I mean, wh- what decisions have we made that is keeping food from people? Is it big companies? Are these investment firms like Goldman Sachs? I mean, not to you can't pick right. one group and say it's them, but it, I mean, it's sort of all of the above. I mean, it's, um, you know, the, the Monsanto's, uh, the Kraft Foods. Um, you know, our historic subsidies, say for corn, when, when the, all the ethanol was rolling, we make political decisions and, and plow great deals of money into um, um, farms that produce certain things that create an, un, an unjust uh, network. We don't subsidize, say here in New York State, big fruit producer, we don't subsidize fruit purveyors, but we subsidize corn farmers. And then how does that have a, a snowball effect that uh, more people are coming to you? Well, so- I'll give you an idea, um, roughly for $3.00. Um, you can either buy 3,000 calories of processed food or 300 calories of fresh food. Mm. Um, so it's creating a pricing structure um, that leads people to diabetes, leads people to hypertension, leads to um, developmental disabilities with young children who aren't getting proper nutrition. And these are a direct result of, of economic choices and, and how our tax money is going. So it's a choice to make uh, the fruit roll-up be cost 20 cents and yeah. the, the the heritage turkey costs 200 dollars. Exactly, i mean exactly. those are decisions yeah, we're right. making yeah. and it's putting the money into the pockets of big business right. and not really creating a healthy environment where everybody right. is in a good situation because the actual cost of a fruit roll-up without subsidies would be significantly more mm-hmm. yes exactly uh, without right it's yeah. not a fair price yeah. very very interesting um so it's a it's a justice issue and uh, not a poverty issue yeah. um it is a very powerful statement because people always associate hunger with poverty. Right, right. It's just people don't have enough money to get what they need. But they're making choices because our economic structure keeps certain things out of people's grasp, mm-hmm. out of certain segments' grasp. Very, very interesting. Now, what can we do? I mean, what is the I path know. for someone I to, I mean, besides helping Bread and Life? Right. I mean, path, obviously helping something like Bread and Life um, – because we can't abandon people. Well, you know, you can't just say give up on all the charity, even though it is a symptom of the injustice. I mean, I think it is. It's it's a difficult time now. It's a difficult time because of we, austerity, kind of people pushing for that, pushing for austerity, and really un-austere times. Um, we've had some of the greatest wealth creation in the history of the country. Right. right. Um, At the same time, they're arguing yeah, that we have to cut. Um, it's a. It's a. You know, we have the least effective Congress we've ever had. It passed the least amount of bills since they've been recording them. To, uh, I think since 1940, 1939. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of it comes. I think first, it comes on the personal level with our own economic choices to looking on how we're doing, where we're spending our money. Um, because it's got to be important to us. And then that grows, if you'll pardon the kind of metaphor, then, and then that grows to the political climate. Um, and, and making informed choices on your voting, making informed choices on your uh, kind of where you would like to influence legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have the Tea Party's great at, at kind of rousing everyone around, we should cut food stamps. Because that's how we will solve hunger. We'll force people. I don't know how you starve people and force them to work, but that's sort of the argument there. Um, and but they've been very good, and people have been very good at getting them. There's a certain segment that really has gotten to their legislature and say, "This is what we want." Mm-hmm. Uh, the progressive community has not done a good job of that. I think, as the progressive community is not, 
have not got down and done the dirty work that needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that needs to be done. Well, there was just an article in today's New York Times on the cover, um, and it was uh, basically the Lin- war on poverty and the fact that we're not really winning it. And I believe that Lyndon Johnson made a declaration that there would be a war on poverty. Mm-hmm, and now many decades later, there has been some, I think, 5 million people less. But basically, it, right. it hasn't been that significant. So they, they showed uh, you know a, a Tea Party senator on there. And basically, it's job creation versus social programs. And just when I go to the Midwest yeah. to visit the farmers, they're like, no, those people are... Uh, there's a lazy, you know, they, they mm-hmm. attack the victims right. in a way. Yeah. But, I mean, it's also hard to argue against them. I mean, is there a line you draw where it's too long that people ask for I, help? I th- I mean, yeah, I, I don't make that decision. But, yes, there is. I, and I would agree to, in the in the main that the war on poverty has failed. The problem has been through the Johnson administration, even through the Nixon administration, up to the Reagan administration, we focused the whole war on poverty primarily – on charitable endeavors, on, on, um, and some things really worked. We almost had hunger licked in this country by about 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of those initiatives worked. Food stamps very much worked, and that food stamp money supported the farmers. Um, what we've never done is really we talk it. We've never done the job growth. We expect by just cutting taxes of big business, they will create jobs. Big business creates money and wealth by reducing their expenses. That's the nature of capitalism. Right. They don't do it by increasing. Labor is an expense for production. We've also moved to uh, – um, I'll give you an idea that in 1978, um, real wages allowed um, – traditionally then it was a man, but one person, uh, one income family to support four children. Mm-hmm. That – real wages have actually dropped by 40 percent by now. So you cannot have a single income family maintaining a middle-class lifestyle. Mm-hmm. We've bought into that, that – the I would agree with the Tea Party folks if they really did create well-paying jobs that would move people off. They they cover the cherry on top. They say, well, this company now has uh, tax incentives to create jobs, no. but they don't necessarily follow through and ensure that 10 million jobs got no, created. No, no, they don't. There's there's all the – we see even here in the developers. You know, They'll promise all these jobs, and most of them are minimum wage jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, economically, uh, to maintain a middle-class lifestyle here in New York City, which is an expensive town, it's approximately $75,000 a year for a family of four. Mm-hmm. That's to maintain. Um, that's not $8 an hour. Well, um, I mean, you mentioned the minimum wage. Is that enough to do it? I mean, the minimum wage is seven twenty-five. Yes. Is that right? I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen the stats that if minimum wage grew with inflation, it would be about $21 now. Uh-huh. It's not kept pace with inflation. Um, so it's not a minimum wage. It's a substandard wage. So now is this really in and of itself going to fix things? I mean, if it goes from seven twenty-five to $9, I mean, what are they even proposing it to go to? And yeah. will that really no. change the destiny? Of- it would help. It would help, but help. it won't. It won't. Um, no, because it needs to be – it probably needs in this town to be about $14, $15, something around there. And what will it be of the – you know – parties that are pushing for an increase in the minimum wage, what's a realistic new wage if things happen like they might? Um, I think, like I mentioned, in this town, probably $15 an hour. You think it'll go up to that? Um, no, I don't think it right. will. Um, but I think it should. should, right. Um, it's, uh, you and I would not work for – we couldn't maintain no. um, for $7, $8 an hour. Um, and it is a justice issue. Labor – one of the things we've done with this country is we've allowed – industry to move around the world. 
we've allowed businesses can do all their work in China, then mm-hmm. re-import stuff. I mean, all these manufacturers, we're sitting here in Williamsburg, which still has some manufacturing, but nothing's actually made here. Mm-hmm. It comes off the docks from China. We've not allowed labor to move. Mm-hmm. Labor can't follow for just wage jobs. I mean, I don't know if people want to relocate to China, but there's a notion we punished labor and rewarded rewarded the businesses. Hmm. No, that's very, very interesting. So uh, job creation, so because jobs have not been created mm-hmm. effectively to you know provide right. opportunity for yeah. people to work, therefore social programs continue right. the need to be maintained. And then what they do is because we throw, it's somewhat throwing people the crumbs, they do maintain, I mean, I think they maintain some kind of political equilibrium. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you cut all social programs, I don't know what folks would do. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you, if you really, we might have significant political unrest, mm-hmm. uh, but we give people enough um, to, to almost get by. Mm-hmm. So uh, when was the last time there was unrest for such issues? Um, a Great Depression. And we had, you know, we had the Hoovervilles, the marches on Washington. Mm-hmm. We had, we had the Wobblies, which was a violent response, um, a violent labor union. Um, there was very, I mean, that's a time. I'm um, talking to my great grandfather. That was a time, probably the only time when the country was really f- afraid of going communist because there was a sense that they offered an, um, a better option. Yeah, yeah. A, a, the war kind of took that um, when they when the Russians became an enemy, and I wasn't championing that, but. But that there was enough feel that, that we needed to do something. And you had some of the great progressive legislation. You, you, you had um, Social Security mm-hmm. come out of that. No, very powerful. Now, uh, how do other, are other nations, do they deal with this issue in the same way we do? I mean, is there a melting pot nation like us? And, uh, you know, what other solutions are out there? I mean, I mean, they tend to deal with it in tax structure. I mean, obviously, the European nations, which have a higher standard of living, uh, higher life expectancy, uh, particularly for men. But also less diversity. I mean, yes. they don't have... They're starting to address it. It is, it, it is something that they, they're going to have to struggle with. Mm-hmm. Um, As more people come into more, and, their borders. Yeah, and, and folks who are not like them, if you will, right. culturally, linguistically, um, historically, um, and may not and may not be able to. Now, there's something to be in the European countries because such a low birth rate, there's a need to replenish labor. Mm-hmm. We don't quite have that because our birth rate's still almost maintaining our population. So we, But even then, we have, I mean, the numbers float around. What is it, 19, 20, mm-hmm. six? A lot of undocumented folks are doing a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Well, and that will create, I mean, uh, well, the immigration issue, I mean, that kind of adds a new layer to everything you're talking about, right? I mean, do you require any IDs? We don't. No. We don't, no. Um, Some people do? um, Yes, we don't, um, because hunger is hunger. Uh Hungry is hungry. Um, And uh, 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 we're able to give it to folks, and and particularly folks who are undocumented aren't eligible for anything else. Mm -hmm. They're not this mythical drain on society that we think they are. What is the worst hunger situation? I mean, people, we say go hungry, but, um, you know, at the same, I mean, how do you define hunger? I mean, this isn't, uh, these are, is it malnutrition or is it true starvation? It's not starvation out in this country. It's not starvation. Um, It's folks who may go one to two days without a meal. That's the type of hunger we have. Well, the the scariest thing for me is what we're seeing with children. Um, All the body of evidence points that um, proper nutrition between the ages of one and three, if it's not there, causes cognitive deficits that cannot be overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to give you, um, so that um, we're raising a certain kind of subpopulation or a, a small, a significant population, probably about 18 million folks in the country, 
who are not getting enough nutrition, what does that bode for future employees, mm-hmm. future scholars, future politicians, all those folks? Hmm. And on the reverse side, we're, um, my brother's a recruiter in the Army, um, and statistically they're seeing in high schools only one in four kids, men and women, can meet the physical requirements for the U.S. military hmm. because of obesity. Um, so that's 75% aren't, regardless if they've got the smarts to do it or mm-hmm. the desire to do it or what, they don't physically meet the requirements mm. just on body mass. Very, very <laughs> fascinating. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. Well, you would think that would unite us yeah. in, a, uh, in I don't, some. Yeah, I don't think, um, I mean, I don't think as a country we believe in the notion of common good. We believe in the notion, the, uh, the abs- every man for himself. Absolute notion. You're right. Absolute kind of belief in private property, and that is erroneous. And no society survive with that with an absolute right to private property. There is right to private property. There's also a notion of solidarity that the government should only do what folks can't do for themselves. Mm-hmm. Government should not take away. So that's why jobs are important. It's much more important to have someone make money to raise their family than get um, some kind of government assistance. Mm-hmm. Well, very interesting. Well, this, uh, it, I mean, brings up this uh, issue of interconnectivity, right? Very much so. Um, and that is uh, something that, uh, well, the Pope, uh, you had yeah. mentioned, talks about it, um, that there is a relational situation. Yeah. I mean, explain. Well, that's what, you know, when I mentioned the con- there is a relation. I think food justice is probably one of the easiest ways to sh- show it. You were reading in your introduction and you talked about um, antibiotics. Um, these foods are raised with no antibiotics. There's an interrelational. The farmers are making a choice, probably doing more work because it's probably easier to raise animals with antibiotics. You don't have to take care of them as much. You can put them in less sanitary conditions. And they're doing that, and that directly relates to children not getting antibiotics, mm-hmm. which, which, are, which and the antibiotics are pointing that they're becoming drug-resistant, the children are. Mm-hmm. So there's a relational thing, that that act of that farmer is doing something um, not directly related to his business, but related to how it impacts mm-hmm. um, the stewardship of the, of the land, which means that the next generation of farmers can come down. Um, the stewardship of the land, how it affects global warming, because um, it reduces the carbon footprint. Um, the farmers paying just wages, because if they pay just wages, that means their workers and their farmhands are paying taxes, are purchasing in the community, are buying gas, you know, purchasing car, all those things. Mm-hmm raising their children and making more vibrant communities that interconnectivity it's not it's not a kind of soft oh let's hold hands and all be interconnected and we'll love each other it's not that it's that we cannot function most of us cannot function and we couldn't function well without being connected to other people Mm -hmm. in in a just way not an emotional way because you're not connected with a lot of farmers in an emotion you might know say as you purchase they're Mm -hmm. connected with those farmers i'm not connected necessarily with the farmer the, the sausage i had this morning but I know that that farmer did something that's effective to me and relational to me, and then my relationship is partially giving him the money, and my relationship is also teaching about that and, and bringing this connectivity. And then food, which is probably the most connective thing we can do. Yeah. We sit around a dinner table. We're sitting here in a restaurant getting hungry, looking at all the food out there, but these are folks really enjoying each other's company. Mm-hmm. And that really builds, that builds something. And yet we've been our eyes kind of taken away of that with the competitive eating and chef oh, competition shows. I, I mean, stuff. the what we see 
is the opposite. I know. I, I think if I want to watch football, I'll watch football, not the Iron Chef. You know, yeah. cursing at someone because the chickens are raw. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> and also, yeah, and it's not, and you can't even taste the food. I no, mean, it's uh, not. So it's like you're living vicariously through someone else's yeah. palate. Yeah, and it just right, seems right. like, and it's really, it's not about the food. Then it's being better than someone else. It's right. really. Um, about being better as opposed to what food traditionally has been is to welcome someone, not to be competitive. Mm-hmm. When I go to someone's house and they cook a nice meal, I'm very gratified that they did a nice meal. They're not trying to tell me they're a better cook than I am. Yeah, they right. may or may not be. But you they, might be thinking that or not, but you no, don't but, say But it. then I'll usually ask, like, what would you do with yes, this? Exactly. You know, what spice you use or something like that? And Now, uh, you know, speaking of that, you know, the Pope, the current Pope, called Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food. And, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but Carlo swears that he did not have any idea. And he picks up his cell phone, and he's like, and it was the Pope. And, uh, I mean, he was basically talking, I mean, if you read the uh, article about it, I mean, just how important what Carlo is doing and the people, the interconnectivity, especially as it relates to food. So, I mean, that has been a, uh, talk to us about the Pope, because I know you have a religious tie with the... uh, Um, That's why I was a couple minutes late. I was coming from Mass this morning, but made good time of the traffic. Great. Um, Yes, um, what this Pope is doing is essentially um, talking about stuff that's actually been around for years, the Catholic social ju- social justice teaching um, dates from really took place in the, the labor movement in the, in the late 19th century, but even dates back to St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. But this Pope's finally got it because he lives it. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's important because we're talking relational. You can blabber on about everything, um, but if you don't live it, and if you don't live relational, it's very hard to tell someone about relational. If you don't farm relationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this pope is talking about, that he goes out and meets people. I mean, he invited two homeless guys, and there are three homeless guys and their dog, in for his birthday breakfast. Because <laughs> he didn't want to have breakfast alone. It was important to be relational. Yes. You know? Um, and then that trust. Because it really is, there's a trust. When you get people together, you really can create something. You can create something better. Um, and always based at, um, on that, and what the Pope's really talked about, is the inherent dignity of each human being, that they're, they're valuable. I mean, you know, there's that kissing of that man who was very deformed. I so, saw that picture. Yeah, um, but that man was valuable, Yes, even though he was not pleasing to the eyes, if you will. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, I mean, this is a great Pope. He's a Pope yeah. of the people. Do you think he has the potential to be a, a powerful Pope on the I scale so. of Pope John Paul? Uh, I don't know if he's a, he's not the same type. I'm, John Paul II was a CEO kind of guy. He was an actor, an too. An actor, too. And he knew that. I mean, he, he loved acting, and he knew how to use that. He mastered the, uh, the kind of stagecraft. This Pope is a pastor. He's a parish priest. He's a missionary by trade. He's also a high school chemistry teacher. Hmm. Um, so teaching high school kids will probably train you for anything. Yes. Um, but I think he, because he's cagier than his all shucks kind of approach, mm-hmm. he's very cagey. He understands the politics. People need to realize that this pope was the second highest vote getter in the last papal election. Hmm. So he's not this little guy they pulled off the farm, right? Um, you know, he's he's you know he's clever like a. And what is he uh, marshalling for? I mean, what is he pushing? He's what? pushing. For, he's pushing to both kind of be a prophetic witness to these relational and that people are valuable and he's also retooling the kind of in, um, institutional structures I mean he's appointed this eight um, member group to look at the, the curia and how it works he just announced that no one under the age of 65 will be made a monsignor which is a title of um, uh, respect t- and reward right. reward um, and traditionally it was a reward you give it to an older man who worked hard his whole life and mm-hmm. kind of reward which is a nice thing but you don't give it as they were giving it to some guys with 35 who haven't right. done because then it's just power right and so by that symbol 
um, he's, uh, he's, he's addressed some of that. Um, and he's making political changes, mm-hmm. you know, because he is um, one of the um, – that he does carry um, within the church structure political authority that he mm-hmm. can make changes. Very interesting. Well, so is he a populist? I mean, is that was a bit... I would say I don't think he's a populist. I think he's a radical. A radical. Because um, ethically, he's fairly conservative. Um, but he's really radical getting back to the core what is important. Mm-hmm. So now let's uh, go from uh, God and, and the heavens mm-hmm. and the whole world yeah. to the localist of politics right. with Bill de Blasio right. now as the mayor. Right. I mean, he is now a kind of populism yes. right yes he's definitely pushed himself as that and now to, how is that going to affect you what do you think of him and, and if you could also speak a touch about bloomberg who you know gave 650 million of his own yeah. dollars to the city but also was got very bad marks on how he right. saw certain issues yeah. whether it was the poor the All stop right. and frisk yeah so it's, it's local an, politics I, yeah local po- I'm, I'm still holding my judgment on on mayor de blasio I don't have a sense. He's it's only not, been three days. Or yeah, and historically he's not done a lot. I don't mean that in a negative sense, but it, but as a councilman and, and the public advocate, he didn't do a lot. Um, I, I think his language, when I was watching his inauguration, it was very, if you will, pardon the pun, black and white. It seemed to be talking about a city that doesn't exist anymore. I thought it was kind of ironic they were talking about slaves and things like that, and Bill de Blasio's black wife is standing next to him. So I, there's, they, they didn't quite pick up the irony, and Letitia James talking about... Um, that was that girl, Dasani, mm-hmm. um, who comes out of, she actually, the, the, the girl who, who was trapped in the shelter system was in the Auburn shelter, which was in Letitia James's district for years, and uh, nothing was ever done about it. So, mm-hmm. um, so I mean, I, I like the language, but I think we need real progressives that really want to work and get the compromise and, and work with people. On the flip side with Bloomberg, I think his per- he did a lot of good things. I mean, he, um, he turned over to Bill de Blasio a huge surplus, mm-hmm. which is a, when you walk into a job and you don't have a huge debt. Yeah. Um, he did try a lot of things. I mean, I sat – this was years ago. I sat on Bloomberg's first term. We created this whole blueprint to end homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't followed. It didn't work. But it wasn't that he didn't try. His, um, his methodology was wrong. Um, I, uh, and then he gets in his own way sometimes because he comes across as, you know, a cranky businessman. Yeah. Um, but I think his legacy will leave. I mean, there will be certain um, – what's happened with homelessness, which is the highest it's been um, ever, um, is somewhat a result of his policies, um, somewhat a result of the lack of affordable housing, and somewhat a result of things outside of his control. Mm-hmm. Um, so do these things matter to you? I mean, when there's a new mayor, a new governor, yeah. or a new president, are you like, oh, brother, they uh, this is going to affect bread and life oh, and my do. work as the executive director? They do. I mean, I'm On think, all levels? Yeah. I, well, I think we can work from the top down, if you will, on the federal level with the upcoming food stamp cuts. If mm-hmm. the farm bill passes in its current incarnation, New York City will lose an, annually an additional 75 million meals. To give you an idea, 75 million meals is what we produce, the emergency food provider network produces now. So we'll be asked to double, and we can't do it. Um, but um, to give folks an idea of that, um, working down, um, you know, the, the state does provide some support. Actually, Andrew Cuomo um, found some money um, with the previous food stamp cuts, which cut on an average $40 per family, which um, went in on uh, November 1st. Uh, there were some awards given to um, agencies like myself to buy food. Um, to, to minimize that cut. Um, the city has had a commitment to, to working with the poor, uh, to, to addressing this. So, yes, it does af- affect me, um, and it does. Um, in some ways, the city government is much more accessible 
So I have to learn the new cast of characters mm-hmm. now. I hate that, but um, but th- but those kind of things um, they they will play out, mm-hmm. um, and we'll see. Um, um, I haven't heard Bill De Blasio talk about homeless and hunger issues really, um, except for a couple photo ops on the campaign. I was disappointed um, with the campaign because um, Joe Loda ran such a bad campaign. I wish mm. he had ran a strong campaign because he got he got sort of described as a Giuliani light, and he's not. Um, he's kind of socially progressive. He's fiscally conservative. He's been an effective civil servant. I mean, with his work he did with the MTA um, and things like that. Um, but whoever has handled his campaign, and I wish it was stronger because then it would have forced those issues Mayor to de Blasio table, to start yeah. start really talking about. Um, uh, the real issues and, and arguing them. Well, I mean, I brought this up before, and I didn't get the uh, you know a complete direct answer. Sure. But what, let's say you do have to double the number of meals. Is there a part of your constituency? I mean, uh, constituency might not be the right word yeah. of the people you feed that do need to get cut off. I mean, is it is year after year too long at some point? I mean, how do you respond to right. that? Um, I'm not asking the question the way an angry Tea Party no, would. No, no, I hear you. Um, if you were talking to one, would, what, where's the line? I don't know where the line is because I'd, I would – what would be the effect if I cut – if I if I did believe that if I cut someone off after, let's say, a year or two years or something like that, and that would force folks to get a job, then I would do it. Right. But it doesn't do that. doesn't do that. Because the, the opportunities aren't out there. Um, for, but there must be some people that you see that oh, you're is, just like, I is, don't buy it. There is. And there's also a group – there's always going to be a certain percentage of our country that's going to need charity. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is – I mean, I've I mean, I've had you know, CEOs and say, why can't these folks get jobs? You know, they'll be volunteering. And, and I tell them, would you hire some of them? There's cert- folks have some certain deficits that they're yeah. just not employable. I mean, even our countries. Our countries really a full employment rates based on about three and a half, four percent unemployment. Right, it has to for certain um, disabilities and reasons. Um, um, what we need to do is continue to reduce that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a, a certain group that that won't be employable, or has um, they either have deficits of education, deficits of upbringing, mm-hmm. or they have responsibilities. Single mothers. It's very hard to employ them because the, the support system for them to work. Or non-existent. Non-existent. Well, um, can you talk to people about Bread and Life and how to give money to it and where that money goes, what percentage of mm-hmm. the money goes to programs, yeah. and, and what are you funding uh, concretely? Bread, yeah, Bread and Life, uh, just to give folks an idea, Bread and Life, we're approximately uh, just about $3.5 million annual uh, budget. Of that, 91% is privately raised. Um, so I'd like the listeners to know that, that um, the Emergency Food Network is not highly subsidized by tax money. And that 9% we get, um, most of it is from the city in New York State, and it's entirely targeted to food. So it's not targeted to salaries um, and heat and light and paying for my refrigerators and gas to cook food. So we have to raise about $3.2, $3.3 million a year. Hmm. Um, and folks can donate by going to www.breadandlife.org. Um, we run, um, I think, a very good ratio. We run um, f- only 15% overhead. Okay. So for every dollar donated, 85% goes, 85 cents, excuse me, um, goes to um, food um, and, uh, and our services. Um, and to give folks an idea of our services, we did a recent survey in our food pantry, and we found that 72% of our folks who use our food pantry use it for 180 days or less and then disappear for two years, hmm. which is a bit of an answer to that chronicity we were talking yes. about earlier, that folks use the food pantry, get over some economic hump, whatever happened, get themselves stabilized, and then come back because their economic status is so fragile. If something happens, somebody gets sick, somebody gets laid off, and they need our food pantry again. Right. 
Well, very, very interesting. And so, what do you? Uh, so, how do you think people should give once a year? I mean, we talked about this on the last right. time you were on with me uh, about how uh, you know what percentage of your income yeah. you should be giving, and it's always a much higher percentage than people yeah. uh, usually right. give. And you made the very interesting point that America's poorest people are actually yeah. the most generous. Yeah, as you work up the economic food chain, um, folks give less a percentage of their of their income. Um, How do people give? Like, uh, take uh, me and my wife, Anne. I mean, what do you hope? Uh, that we make four small donations a year? That we make one big one at the end of the what, year? What is more important to me, really, is predictable donations. Mm-hmm. So I can plan and budget. Um, and I think I, I would encourage um, that whatever charity folks give to, it's better to give one larger donation to a particular charity than ten smaller ones to ten charities. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, your your uh, the the efficaciousness of your donation is much better. Say say you're going to give a thousand dollars in a year. That's your budget for. That's what you give to charity. It's some ways better to give two five hundred dollar donations than ten one hundred dollar donations right. to different charities. Um, and people should look at it, and you also should, I think people should make a commitment if they're going to do a charity. Uh, traditionally, they should commit for three to five years. That that's what they're going to give mm-hmm. to. Um, it allows the charity to. It allows the donor, say yourself, to understand how the charity uses the money. Um, it allows, um, are they good stewards of the money? Those are all mm-hmm. questions that, that should be asked. Um, and then you also want people to volunteer also. So if you give to 10 charities, that's harder to it's live hard, up to yeah. that end of the right. relationship. And, and volunteering does two things. One, um, it brings some of your own skills um, either kind of direct service skills or professional skills to, to an agency. It also allows you to see, see where your money is going and also allows you to interact with whom you're serving and whom your money's supporting. And I think that's transformative. Yes. Um, because it's not, it ceases to become those people. That's a big danger we have in this country as we talk about those people. I've always said that when I uh, I do my once a year uh, handing out of the hams on uh, two weekends in the Christmas uh, right. season. And yes, I, I am always like... People should come and see this. Yeah. These are nice people, or sometimes, as you say, they do have disabilities yeah. that confirm certain yeah. truths of yeah. how things are. Right. And um, anyway, it's a, and you have such a great staff. I mean, they're charismatic. <laughs> yeah. They're hilarious. I mean, it's a very, uh, very nourishing thing, a very important thing. People should really do that yeah. a few times a year. Well, thank you. Well, um, this is always a pleasure uh, to, to have you on. I, I hope everyone seriously considers a donation to breadandlife.org. And um, 200th show, it's yes. uh, quite a, an honor. Four years in the making. Uh, it's a privilege you know. to be here. Well, thank you. And uh, food justice, there could be no issue more important. I mean, my whole to me, you know, my whole life I've been... Uh, uh, whole recent life fighting for kind of food justice for farmers and fair wages mm-hmm. and uh, you know I've always been against uh, commodity price structures right. which never pay farmers enough to yeah. raise good food so um, it's been a very important uh, issue for me and um, Joe the team and all that Joe are you still there did uh, food justice put you to sleep back there it would never never no <laughs> Joe is fighting the good fight and, um, you know, I'm a big fan, Joe, of your music. And, uh, you know, even though you're a big rock and roll star, you come in and uh, produce and engineer uh, HRN. And I love your stories on the news section of it. 
Um, I listen every day, so you're doing a great job with that. Well, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, and um, I apologize for my first hundred shows sucking as bad as they did, but I'm happy to say that the guests have gotten better, and hopefully my interviewing has, and I want to thank all the people that I meet around the city that say that they listen and that they download the episodes. So um, onward and upward, I want to also congratulate Aaron Fairbanks uh, for doing such a great job as the executive director. It's not easy to marshal so many hosts and to create some Something that hasn't existed before, which is food news, which changes daily on our homepage. So um, thanks, Tony, for coming in from Mass. And uh, thanks to our listeners. And uh, stay tuned for the uh, Mike and Judy show coming up in an hour. Have a great weekend and happy holidays. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.